turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bandied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not, um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore have been locations where um, faith particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are a persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over and sort of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we saw as nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. but until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore... You know, uh, I don't. I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or, or theocracy or or, or or theology or things of that nature. And so, it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is. Um 
an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, Some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and and, uh, covert, others more overt and and even systematic. Why, Why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of, again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia. Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still have this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue well, they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But, yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's, it's, it's very hard for, for to point out how intolerant they are because, in their mind, they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. There are those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there. And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of, uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? 
Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Uh, Seemingly, um, uh, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in, not not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. It's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with. And then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it, and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. 
and so uh, the way I would see it is it's a matter of power that certain groups now have power to harm Christians and they don't like Christians for, for a variety of different reasons and now so they are going to use that power what about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone study race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, and what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonging to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals were a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while they, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end, it begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God. They claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people, that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so 
while, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things, we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a both-and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians. But we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people's Christian phobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist this church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps that to uh, a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for His namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to sort to uh, to work together. Uh so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can... Uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to anti-Christian bias. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, 
some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America. And that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs? Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, uh, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and most importantly Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at uh, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working, but that's where we're so excited about this new research 
in the book Growing Young because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across uh, across the country, across denominational lines. You've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing the quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or uh, maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient or uh, they, you know, uh, their worship is like a rock concert or they've got a laser light show and fog machines or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do historically a good job as the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs, uh, typically what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes. Uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh-huh. So what what we've landed on, uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well 
in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much. And unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, If a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service, typically very early on, came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church, and I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out, and, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies, you have to be in bed at a certain time. We understand that part of this is good parenting, but part of it, I think, lends lends itself to that sense of of being um, not only isolated, but almost, and and again, I have to concur with you at at this level, Jake, it's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of... (laughs) We can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice and often what it costs both generations. 
But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth. And let's be honest about it. As you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion? And and is the church missing the boat here? Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey. That they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront 
of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, and you can go back to the great generation that fought right. World yeah. War II and, right. and so on, they say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These yep. young people today don't care about anything, and yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, um, for want of a better term, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it, that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah. Is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding, and 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill... Uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 no. Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old, Uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace 
and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church and the church needs young people. And when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about. And we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches. Although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace, as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.